0: Jeremiah's Grotto. I bet you thought I was going to say Jeremiah was a bullfrog, but I'm not. Or you're maybe thinking, maybe I was going to say Jeremiah, what's that? Clint Eastwood movie, he's Jeremiah something. Anyways, that doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, This is Peter John. I want to talk to you this morning at this segment here on Rogue Grace. Good morning, by the way. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, About Jeremiah's grotto. You see, it's called that because it is the place widely and since ancient times believed to be where Jeremiah stationed himself after he got out of the dungeon because the reason he got out wasn't because the king of Israel released him, but the Babylonians, the The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had overrun Jerusalem in 586, just as Jeremiah had foretold in his book, the book of Jeremiah. And so then he's released from prison. And in fact, he would later, just a a few days later, be shown great favor by Nebuchadnezzar, who said, whatever this guy wants, give it to him. This guy, Jeremiah, because you see, Jeremiah was a man who was telling the people, submit, don't rebel against Babylon. That was the word of the Lord. And of course, as you know, they didn't listen to him at all. But there is this little cave that history seems to indicate to us, ancient history, called Jeremiah's Grotto. It seems to indicate he was, he located, he stationed himself there when he got out of prison. And the reason he stationed himself there when he got out of prison was because it was a vantage point to look out over the city of Jerusalem. And the reason he looked out over the city of Jerusalem is because he was weeping. It's where he probably if not penned, at least spoke or verbalized the words that we now call the Book of Lamentations. That piece of literature, it's so moving, it's so deep and so beautiful. It's a, a lament, a dirge, if you would, For a ruined city, a ruined society. It's a poem, but it's kind of a a funeral oration as well. Because he's watching as his city is being destroyed right before his eyes. And he was probably, now history tells us, uh, He was probably located in what is now called Jeremiah's Grotto, that little cave. And if you ask the community, let's say the Orthodox, let's say the Jewish city, let's say uh, rabbis, and of course, then we would also say priests and pastors as well. The location of Jeremiah's grotto, where he penned the words of lamentations, or at least spoke them, it's where his vantage point was as he watched his city be set on fire by the Babylonians in the year 586. Uh, uh, Jeremiah's grotto, that, that small little cave he was in, if you want to try to trace it with your own thinking, maybe you've seen the pictures of it. You, you probably have. It's the picture that of the, that side of a, a rock that years before Jeremiah, King Solomon had hollowed out because he was using that area of stones of rock for the temple, for the building of the temple. And so it left... An, uh, a, a, a rugged and jagged edge and side of the hill. That ultimately that hill would go up to the top of Jerusalem. The hill would be called Zion, and the bottom of that hill is outside of the city of Jerusalem outside of the city walls both in Jeremiah's day and then in Jesus's day and by the time of Jesus that side of the hill that is just on the outside of the city where it's been cut off cut out and cut away because of Solomon's in uh his engineering and his construction that 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 cave that Jeremiah was in called Jeremiah's Grotto, is also the side of the hill of Calvary. What we as Christians believe Jesus to be crucified upon. And if you look, you can see a a sign or a semblance of, on the side of that hill, a skull. Have you seen it? Especially not, even now it looks like a skull, but back before it was... Um, partly at least partially eroded a bit by modern times in Jerusalem, buses and and so forth. It really looked very much like a skull. if you see a picture from, let's say eighteen eighty five or what have you. So by in Jeremiah's time, it very much looked like a skull. And one of those eyes was his grotto, Jeremiah's grotto, where he writes the book of Lamentations as he's watching Jerusalem go up in flames, be destroyed, the temple, it all be leveled by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, just like Jeremiah had foretold. And so you read Lamentations and There's probably a time or two or more in your life that you can relate to the words of Lamentations. The pain. The times he writes things such as my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns. He writes... Our hearts cried out to the Lord and our tears streamed down like a torrent day and night. There has been a time or two at least where you can say, yeah, that's how I felt. That's what I could have said myself. And he writes those words for the first two chapters of Lamentations. And then as well, the rest of the book, it's properly titled Lamentations, lamenting. Including chapter 3, I want to read this to you. You will be blessed. You will be blessed in lamentations. For uh, Jeremiah writes as he's watching the city from Jeremiah's grotto. From the eye of the skull. He writes... I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my path crooked. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. My soul continually remembers my affliction. is bowed down within me. Those are some... Those are some deep and heavy words. (laughs) You have at one time or another been able to say the same thing. But in case you're getting bummed out, Or depressed by my reading of lamentations check out the very next verse but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope he says man I was going down as I'm watching my city my home go up in smoke but this I called back to my mind and I have hope what He writes, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His mercies never come to an end. Maybe my city, Jeremiah could say, has come to an end. Maybe my, my happiness at this point seems to have come to an end, but his mercy and his steadfast love never comes to an end. And though today is horrid or hard or tough, his mercies are new every morning. Tomorrow morning will be a new day. Great is your faithfulness. And then he writes, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. No matter how bad things are, the city is going up in smoke. Things are on fire in my life, Jeremiah writes. But the Lord is my portion and I will hope in him. Even as bad as things are, even as things seem to be burning up or going down, I will never lose my hope because the Lord is my portion. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? The book of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So Lord, I pray even now for any who can relate to Jeremiah, maybe a person is in the hospital, or someone has lost a loved one, or battling depression or addiction, whatever it may be that a person is going through that they could, like Jeremiah, say, I have seen affliction, I am under wrath and that's how they or we might feel. Lord, thank you that even though all this might be going on, your steadfast love does not cease. And I pray for anyone that's feeling that even right now, that they would see that you have mercy for them this morning. And that great is your faithfulness. Lord, even if the situation is, doesn't change instantly. I pray that our hearts and our minds would change even right now and be comforted because you are our portion.
1: From him. To Him are all things to God
0: Well, we are, uh, generally speaking, attracted to the good qualities in others. I mean, especially when it comes to right romance or dating, you're not attracted to the, uh, weaknesses. You're not attracted to the annoying aspects. You're not attracted to the dumb stuff in that other person you're attracted to their strengths you're attracted to their qualities that's understandable that's the that's how it works but Jesus is attracted not to our strengths as we are with each other but Jesus is unique Jesus is attracted to our weaknesses because it is there in my weakness that his strength is made perfect. It's there where I am weak that his grace can be manifested. Even with my disqualifications in and of themselves, That is the area that I am now most qualified for his favor. This grace thing we talk about, it changes everything, doesn't it? That the Lord has made a way through Christ Jesus, not to be attracted to where I am strong, but to be attracted to where I am weak. Not to keep me in that place of weakness, but to heal me. And to strengthen me and you where we are weak. And God already knows where you are weak. He already knows where you are vulnerable So you might as well not try to shroud it or cover it. You might as well, same with me, be open and honest with him about it, knowing that it's where I am weak, that God will manifest his grace to me and to you. That's the way it works. So Jesus is attracted to our weakness because it is there, his grace can be manifested. And that's why in Jesus' parables, he so often emphasizes God's blessing, God's favor to those that are the least or last or those sheep that are lost. In our human nature naturally we're all trying to be first aren't we the natural uh drive or t- or, or tendency in in me and you is to be first we want to win the rat race in one way or another in the car we drive or the the position at the at the office or if you're single in the dating game we want to win the rat race but just the rat race right just the word if you win the rat race all that means is you're the first rat but even though we want to try to be first it's when we're last least lost that's when we can accept that is when we are qualified for this thing called grace.
1: Oh Christ be the center of our lives be the place we fix our eyes, be the center of of the universe. Everything was made in you. Jesus, the breath of every living thing. Everyone was made for you. You hold everything together. You hold everything together. Christ be the center
0: Don't you love how the Apostle John, when he writes in his gospel, never speaks in terms of using his name, John, or in terms of uh, third person, or even first person, but refers to himself, as you know, many times in that gospel as when he talks about himself and Jesus, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what he calls, references himself as in his gospel, the gospel of John. So Jesus had a bunch of disciples. By bunch, I don't just mean a dozen. First of all, he had Thousands of people following him around Galilee, people interacting with him in Jerusalem. You you know that. He had 70 who were followers or disciples to the place of he sent them out to represent him, two by two. Remember that? He sends out two disciples at a time of the 70 around Israel to speak of the kingdom of God and to proclaim that the kingdom of God was near because Jesus was, quote, in the house, as it were. You know that, 70. But then even of the 70, as you know, there were the 12, the 12 disciples that Jesus called, not just the 70, but the 12 that were with him day and night for those three years. And as you may know, it was a practice of rabbis in his time to live that way with their followers day and night, because the classroom wasn't just in that time for a rabbi in that setting, um, a classroom like that might be in a seminary today, like a university or a classroom. There, There was no classroom. So the The Rabbi would just have his disciples follow him. They would sit at his feet, as it were, if he was sitting sitting down. They would eat with him, they would they would walk with him. It, it, it's even told they would follow him into the bathroom. okay? So that's what the twelve were doing with Jesus. he He invited them, he called them, and they they uh, accepted that call for those three years. But then of the twelve, as you know, It was Peter and it was James and John that were in the inner circle of that group of 12 who was the inner circle of the group of 70. It was those three that Jesus brought with him in those very important moments of his ministry, vital times on the Mount of Transfiguration. Or when he healed the little girl in Jerusalem, or wherever town that was, it was Peter, James, and John that were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Even apart from the other disciples, so you have the the seventy, and then you have the twelve. Then you have the three, but then there was only one when Jesus was being crucified that was at the cross. You know that. Maybe you can re- re- reflect or think about the, the image in the passion of the Christ, you know, where John is standing there. The only disciple of the 12 left, of the 70 left, of the thousands remaining was John. Standing there on Golgotha while his Savior, his Master, his Rabbi was being crucified. What kept John? from running or bolting? What kept John from abandoning Jesus when everyone else, all the other men had? I think it has to do with John being the disciple whom Jesus loved. Maybe I would suggest that very name shows that he was so conscious that the Lord loved him. That is what caused him to end up loving the Lord more than anyone else. Not because he was such a great person or because he had disciplined himself to do so. He simply realized how much the Lord loved him. And so it could be said John, of any one of the disciples or of the thousands that were with Jesus before, John loved Jesus the most. Who loves Jesus the most? The one that, like John, is the most conscious that the Lord loves him and the Lord loves her. That's why. You do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat of my body, drink of my blood, because it reminds you how much Jesus loves you. That's why he says, and lo, I come in the volume of the book, for when you read the Bible, it reminds you about how much Jesus loves you. That's why Jesus said, when you gather two or more in my name, I will be in the middle of you. I will be there because when we gather in his name, we're reminded about how much Jesus loves us. If you go to church and you're not reminded about how much Jesus loves you, you need to switch churches. if you're always being told what you should do, how much you should love Jesus, you need to come to Applegate Christian Fellowship. (laughs) Because, listen, people telling you that you need to love Jesus more is not going to create that love within you for him. When people tell you how much Jesus loves you, that makes you love Jesus more.
1: Praise the Lord. When it comes out easy, praise the Lord. On top of the world, praise the Lord. Cause in every moment, Jesus Christ is Lord. Even if I'm in the love of the joy. It seems too hard praise the lord cause in every moment jesus christ is lord Praise the Lord.
0: wondering if you who are listening, anyone who might be listening, if anyone is listening, I wonder if you are on your second marriage. There's a 50% chance that you are. <laughs> nah, we're all Christians. Yeah, I'm talking about in the church. has been the divorce rate. Maybe you're on your third marriage. I think we should not assume that God has no blessings for a second marriage. I'm not saying. So let's just get divorced. That good should come. That's 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 stupid. If someone says that I stated that, they're slanderously reporting wrong. I did not say that. But I'm also saying just because you as a listener are on your second marriage doesn't mean in my reading of the gospel and the new Testament that God has no more blessing or grace for you, but it's, this is so true that it's not only in the gospel and the new Testament, it's with David and Bathsheba. Do you think that was a, a a marriage that God really encouraged or, That God is the one that joined them together? No. You know. She was already married to one of David's mighty men. His top soldier, Uriah. When David slept with her. Then to cover up because she was pregnant by David. He ordered to have Uriah put on the front lines and die in battle. And then he married her, got punished by God because David was still under the law, even though he had a heart for the new covenant. But it says that David, after the baby died, comforted his wife Bathsheba. She became pregnant with Solomon, the next king of Israel. The man who penned the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. So, if you're on a second marriage where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. God brought Solomon from a very, let's just call it a shady relationship of David and Bathsheba. And I'm not saying so dump your husband or divorce your wife. No, what I am saying is that that has happened in your past. God has grace and favor for you as you turn to him he'll bring a solomon out of the mess he'll bring bring his grace into your marriage into your home into your life that's why it's good news <laughs> Treated as the world's worst sinner. Believe it or not, and I know you do believe it, but believe it or not, it wasn't Adolf Hitler. It wasn't Hugh Hefner. But the one who was treated as the world's worst sinner was the world's greatest saint, the world's greatest man, Jesus, on the cross, was treated as the world's worst sinner. Now, did Jesus, he became sin on the cross, but did he become sin by committing sin? No way. Absolutely not. He never committed a sin, but he became sin on the cross. Say So too now on the other side of that. Do you and I become righteous because we have committed righteous works or acts? Nope. We are now made righteous through nothing we have done ourselves, just as Jesus was made sin by nothing he had done himself. That is, Makes you equivalent to the world's greatest saint because God treated Jesus as though he was the world's worst sinner. I love how God made us his children. Through the work of the most blessed man, the sinless man, Jesus Christ, his son. And to Jesus be glory and praise from me and from you, both now and forever. Thank you for tuning in. I had a good time. I hope you were blessed. Should God tarry in sending his son, I will see you, so to speak, more like talk with you tomorrow morning on Rogue Grace. God bless you.